see the child. He is pale and thin. He wears a thin and ragged linen shirt. He stokes the scullery fire. Outside lie dark-turned fields, with rags of snow and darker woods beyond, that harbor yet a few last wolves. His folk are known for hewers of wood and drawers of water, but in truth his father has been a schoolmaster. He lies in drink. He quotes from poets whose names are now lost. And the boy crouches by the fire and watches him. All right. Welcome to the Capo Podcast. That is the introduction, the first paragraph to Blood Meridian. And it got me thinking that the introductions to novels, I think, are important. Uh, I don't... I can't even explain why they're important other than they give you a look at, usually they give you a look at your protagonist. And, uh, for example, um, and I'm doing these kind of off the top of my head, but uh, in 1984, it opens that it was a bright, cold day in April. That's the opening of 1984. Um Fahrenheit 451 says, it was a pleasure to burn. That's the opening line. Um, The Hobbit is uh, in a hole in the ground. There lived a Hobbit. And then, uh, I don't know, I think Macbeth starts with the three witches saying, where will we meet again in uh, rain and wind or something along those lines. But... What I mean to say is the introduction to novels are important. And you should, there's something that you should remember when they're very good novels. And the introduction to Blood Meridian is no exception to that. And actually, the book opens with three separate quotes that are also important. But I don't want to, uh, I don't want to read them. I want that to be something for you if you decide to read this novel. Because this is one of those novels that if if I was stuck on an island and you, and you could you were only allowed to have two books, I think I would pick the Bible and Blood Meridian because of course I'm a Christian and if you're a Christian, you need to take the Bible, right? If you only had one book, you'd have to take the Bible. But if they're going to give you a second choice, I think Blood Meridian is good. I think it's a good second choice. It would definitely be my second choice. Because where the Bible is read, or should be read, in its entirety, as the story of Christ and the nature of God, Blood Meridian should be read as the story of the devil and the sinful and precarious nature of man. Now, first and foremost... Blood Meridian is not a book for a child to read, for a kid to read. It's not even a book for a teenager to read. I don't even think it's a book for someone who is an adult who isn't a reader to read. The book, this book, Blood Meridian, is a book written for men who have read many other books. And it doesn't really preclude women from reading it. Uh, in fact, I think 
an intelligent and discerning woman should probably read this book, if only to better understand the physically violent primal nature of their male counterparts. But this is a book for men intended for men about men. This isn't a book about women, and Cormac McCarthy's pretty open about that. I think in one of his very few interviews, because uh, he did not do very many interviews, does not do very many interviews. And one of the only people that got a good interview with more, with McCarthy was uh, Oprah. And she used her golden opportunity of a of an interview to ask him just the dumbest freaking questions I've ever heard. But she asked him one that was kind of interesting and gives you insight into him. She asked him about why doesn't he write more female characters, and McCarthy was very open. He's like, well, I don't understand women, and I don't think most men do. So his book and all of McCarthy's books are books written for men. And so I think this is a book that a man should read, after he's read several other books. Now, back to the introduction. We hear the introduction saying, see the child. This is a sentence that's telling you to look at. It's saying, look at this main character. And the main character it gives you is the child. And he's the protagonist of the novel. And his character name will change from the child to the kid. And in Almost the entirety of the novel, he is only referred to as the kid. In the last chapter of the book, he's called the man, but this isn't until the very end. Now, I've not read every single McCarthy novel. I'm working on it, but I've read quite a few of them, and there are these recurring themes and ideas that run through all of them. For example, in Child of God... The protagonist is introduced as someone of Saxon and Celtic blood, much like yourself, perhaps. And I believe the kid in Blood Meridian is the same sort of character. Not giving the character a name is a, is a way that an author says that this character is like you. This could be you, or even better, this is you which is kind of a deep concept, it's hard to swallow, but once you can wrap your head around it, that's an immensely powerful concept of this is you. Now, McCarthy, Cormac McCarthy, uh, for those who don't know, he's an American author, and he writes about specifically American characters. He's considered a the style, I guess, would be kind of called... Southern Gothic is what most people put him in, but he is arguably the greatest living American author, and uh, he's somebody who you, because his writing is very non-commercial, very artsy, very literature, you know, high-minded, he's, he's a little bit pretentious. I think in his, I don't think he means to be pretentious, but most people who are Cormac McCarthy fans are kind of uh, pretentious type people who want to convince everybody that they're really smart. And uh, 
honestly, that's his books are kind of like that. And if you aren't well-educated and well-read, you're going to have a hard time getting through his books. But, lucky for you, here I am to explain it to you, at least in part. I think this is one of those books that after this podcast, you should go read it if you are somebody who has who has read a few books and, and could get through it. So, to the story. The child, as he's introduced in chapter one, is this pale, unwashed boy from Tennessee. And his father is a school teacher, and his mother is dead. And the book explains that the, the kid has this proclivity for mindless violence. And he runs away at 14, and he heads west. And as you read, you see the kid kind of wander westward through the established places of America. Because he's leaving Tennessee, and he's traveling through places that are already settled. Um, He travels through, he spends time in New Orleans, where he gets to see people from all other places who speak all these other languages. Um, And that's his first taste of kind of what the rest of the world looks like. And what he does is he basically fights these men for wages in a bar. Uh, There's a, a description of the boy, the kid... Um, and what you're given is that he is someone who is not big, but he has big wrists and big hands and his shoulders are close set just from the picture. You might picture like a chimpanzee physique with the face of a child. And the book says he has strangely innocent eyes. Now, spoiler alert, nearly every character you meet in the novel is unsettling in appearance. And the kid is not really an exception if you think about him. He he looks kind of like a, I don't know, like a, like a monkey with a child's face. Uh, after he is injured in this bar fight in New Orleans, he recovers and he goes to Texas. And this is where it really feels like the actual story for the kid starts. And the year is revealed to be 1849. And the kid finds himself in Nacogdoches. And he meets this character who will come to be the antagonist of the story. So, this antagonist. There's arguably very little in this story that is not important to the plot. And... The kid wanders into Nacogdoches, into this kind of big carnival-style tent. And in the tent, there's a preacher giving a sermon. And this is probably one of the most important parts of the novel because of what the preacher is saying. The preacher is talking to these rough frontier types in Nacogdoches, and he tells this man... uh, He talks to a man about entering a whorehouse, or a hellhole, as he calls it. And he asks the man, you going to take the Son of God in there with you? And the man says that he will not. And the preacher replies that Jesus will be with him whether he asks him to or not, because he is with him always. And he points out that the man can't get shed of him, because that's the nature of Christ. 
Now, the nature of Christ is important in this context because of what happens immediately following the preacher's words. As he's listening to the preacher, the kid sees this man enter the tent, and this man is called the judge. His name is Judge Holden, and he is described as a massive, pale, hairless man with a childlike face and small hands. The judge weighs more than 300 pounds, and he has this weird, other-earthly look about him. The judge walks into the sermon, and he interrupts, and he accuses the preacher of being an imposter, a fraud, and a sexual deviant that is wanted in other states. And he whips the crowd into a frenzy against the preacher with a a very intelligent and well-spoken statement that's just full of lies about the preacher. And the preacher points frantically at the judge, and he says that all of this is lies, and he says that the judge is the devil. Now the crowd turns on the preacher, and they mean to lynch him, and the preacher has to flee for his life. Now at this point in the novel, we don't know it yet, but the preacher is not exaggerating. The judge is, in fact, the devil. Now the novel doesn't say that out loud in some big reveal at the end of it, but if you read and pay attention to all the things that surround the character, there's no other real logical conclusion you can come to, at least the way I read it. If you read the novel with this in mind, with the idea of the judge being the devil, it will make much more sense to you from start to finish. And uh, as we know, just, I don't know, if we're religious and we we pay attention, we know that uh, the devil, or the judge in this case, he's a very convincing figure, and he's capable of moving the hearts of men. And he goes out of his way to attack the preacher because the preacher is presenting a truth that the judge would rather not have people think about. Later, even when the judge comes clean about his lies at the bar, everyone just laughs about it as if it were a joke and it's hilarious. Someone even buys him a drink. And as the novel goes along, the judge gives his take on many topics and things. And all of the judge's own sermons are very well delivered and very persuasive. They're intertwined with truth and reason, but all of them have, there's this thing that feels off about them. All of them are enthralling, they're exciting, they're profound. The judge is obviously far and away the most enticing character of the novel. And they give you this impression of being like really scientific and learned and true. And that's the judge's game. And the writing is so brilliant that the reader finds himself nodding along, just like the murdering degenerates that the judge has gathered around him like disciples. And once you get to the end and you realize, hopefully, that the judge is what he's doing to these men around him is the same thing he's doing to the crowd at the beginning in the preacher's church. He's lying to them. And there is truth and science and facts all intertwined into his lies. But that's what makes them so convincing. Like 
all representations of the devil in literature. And this is why I did this one just right after Lord of the Flies. Um, The devil is presented as this person, this thing, this entity that uses the truth to tell lies. And that's what the judge does. It's the, the philosophy of humanity and the world that the judge lies about. And the judge is trying to trick not just the men that are, that are following him, but he's trying to trick you, the reader, into accepting his view of the world as the truth. He's attempting to talk you out of the preacher's message about Christ. And that is the true horror of this novel. Because this novel is a horror novel. It's a Western, but it is a terrifying horror genre novel. There is an, I have never read a more violent and horrifying novel than this book. And McCarthy isn't doing that for no reason. He's not a writer that just writes super violent, awful things without a reason in mind. There's a reason he does it, and and I believe that this is the reason, to present you the character of the devil as convincingly as possible. Okay, back to the storyline. After seeing the judge, and the, the kid doesn't interact with the judge. He just sees the judge and he sees what happens. Um, in Nacogdoches, the kid gets into a fight with another man, and they almost kill each other. And then they fall in kind of together after that. They, I don't know, almost make friends. And then uh, together they burn down the hotel and then run out of town. And it's, it's made clear at this point that the kid is drawn to chaos and violence. After that, he drifts by himself um, around places. He moves further west and further south, and he's moving toward the Mexican-American border. And all the way, all the time, he displays this growing violent nature. He, uh, at one point, he meets this mysterious hermit out in the desert. And this hermit shows him the dried, blackened heart of a slave that he kept from his slaving days. And it's a, it's a literal representation of The Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad, which is a famous British novel. I think we talked about it during uh, Lord of the Flies. And this old slaver prattles on about the darkness of man's heart. And this is central to the idea of the novel. The whole, the whole book is about the darkness of man's heart. So this is obviously the the meaning of that scene. The kid leaves there. He he goes out on the prairie. Uh, he almost starves to death, and then he runs into a group of cowboys that are driving a herd, and they give him food and basically save his life. But later he'll lie about it and claim they were bandits that robbed him. Next he joins a paramilitary outfit. And this is captained by a man named White. And White is angry that America hasn't pressed into Mexico after the Mexican War to claim land and pursue interest. And he is, he's openly racist towards the Mexican race, and he intends on leading an expedition to win land and riches. 
and the the kid joins up with this outfit because it's not because he necessarily wants to it's just there's there's nothing else for him to do he's just a a vagabond he's he's got nothing else so the kid joins up with him um and white feels like there's no way he can lose because there's no real government in mexico and he sees himself as someone who can move in and rule this lawless place. And it, it's not quite obvious yet, but Captain White doesn't realize what he's getting himself into. He has this idea of warfare because of the Mexican War, but he's used to this organized traditional military, and his expedition is going to be different. He thinks he'll be the tip of the spear in America's settling of the borderlands and inhabiting it. He believes if he doesn't act, then Mexico is going to fall under other European powers. So, the outfit, the kid, and this, this military unit leaves town. But before they do, there's this very ominous scene with a, a Mennonite in a bar who tells the kid and the men he's with that... They're going to stop them at the river, and they're going to arrest them all. And when they ask who he means, he he tells them that the U.S. government won't allow them to do this. And uh, obviously the kid and the other guys he's with balk at this old Mennonite and don't think they're going to be stopped. And the Mennonite says that you better pray that you are stopped, because if you carry this war into a foreign land he says you're going to wake more than the dogs and it's very ominous and it's this idea of it sets the scene for what happens next because they cross over they get into mexico and uh they they travel on for a while through the desert and just like before they're starving they're they're starved for water it's almost like one of those old kind of cartoons where they're walking through the desert and there's bleached cow bones everywhere. Um, They pray for rain because they're near dead from thirst. And then finally, they run into the Indians. And they see this big herd of cattle and horses. And they're not sure what they are, but the captain kind of sets his men up like they're going to... Like, they're going to get some free cattle and horses, but what they run into are Comanche Indians. It's either Comanche or Apache. It doesn't say in the novel, but from the description, it could be either one, but it really sounds like the Comanche. Now, as far as written accounts of Indian attacks, real or fictional, that I've ever read, This one in Blood Meridian is the most horrifying and profound and, like, the one that I remember is this one. It's immediately apparent to White and the other troops that they are outmanned, outgunned, out of their element, and no match for what they're facing. The descriptions of the Indians are interesting and horrifying, and it says they're they're wearing everything from, like, animal skins to silk, to old dragoon coats. One of them is wearing a conquistador's armor. Another one is wearing a blood-stained wedding veil. 
and like a, a wedding dress. And they, the Comanche or Apache, whatever it is, they fall upon the soldiers and they kill them almost to a man. And the kid survives among the dead and walks out on foot after the battle's over. Almost everyone else is killed. And he follows after this Indian raiding party. And everywhere he goes following in their wake, he sees horror and destruction entire towns slaughtered um he comes to a tree where dead infants are hung in it like ornaments and this kind of seems overdone like most of the violence in the book but if you've read uh some history about the actions of the comanche and the apache uh it's pretty historically accurate when it comes to the brutality uh he finally makes his way back to a town and he's arrested by mexican soldiers and while he's there, he sees Captain's White, Captain White's head, which has been pickled and put in a jar. Uh, it's obvious that the Mexicans know he was with White, and he's put with a couple other survivors into this makeshift cage. And uh, they're, they say they're going to take them to Chihuahua. Now, while in the dungeon at Chihuahua, the kid catches his first glance of a man named John Glanton. And Glanton's gang. Now, Glanton's gang is a group of scalpers, and they're described as barbarous men. They're riding Indian ponies, they're wearing skins, they're carrying all kinds of weapons. It says they're, they're carrying bowie knives as large as short swords, and uh, they're wearing human teeth and ears as necklaces and decoration. They look like cannibals from a heathen land, is what it says. And in this company of John Clanton, uh, John Glanton rides the judge. And the kid recognizes him immediately. Now, the man in charge is John Glanton. But the judge is always at his side, basically sitting on his shoulder, whispering in his ear like all those weird paintings of Lucifer you've ever seen. Now, in the dungeon alongside the kid is that guy that he met back in Nacogdoches and almost got into a, you know, a death match with, and then they burned down the hotel. That guy's name is Toadvine. And Toadvine and the kid get out of the dungeon because they pass a message to Glanton that the kid and Toadvine and this other guy that's with them are seasoned Indian fighters, which is a lie. Well, it's probably not a lie for Toadvine, but it's a lie for the kid. But uh, they tell, they get a message to Glanton that these guys that they have in the dungeon are, uh, you know, American Indian fighters. So Glanton gets them out and adds them to his ranks, and the kid becomes a member of John Glanton's group. Shortly after they join up, the group is outfitted with new weaponry. And they're, this isn't all that important for the story, but I find it interesting because I'm into guns. They're at, outfitted with these uh, Whitneyville Colt pistols, which are these massive Dragoon revolvers. If you know anything about the old Colts, 
You had like the the Colt Navy, the Colt Army, and then the tr- the Colt Dragoon was even larger. And like this is a, a size map, basically. If if you've ever seen uh, if you've ever seen Lonesome Dove, the revolver that uh, Gus carries in Lonesome Dove, that big old revolver, is a Dragoon. And these Whitneyville Colts are even larger than the old Dragoon revolvers. Um, and Glanton's gang gets these revolvers, and these revolvers will become really important to the group, and it's going to make them more dangerous, more fierce, and effective in the chapters that follow. So as the kid leaves with this group, you notice early on that it is the judge who's the most important member of the group of scalpers. Even though Glanton is in charge, the judge is constantly interceding in affairs. Um, the judge is wildly educated to the point where he's entirely out of place among the entire group. Everybody else is just like the roughest, nastiest kind of like guys you've ever seen. And then you have the judge who's dressed similar, but he's a philosopher. He's a scientist. He's an orator. He's a magician. He's a politician. He's a dancer. He's a fiddler. He's a warrior. He's this guy that's very formal and polite to all the authority figures that, that they meet. Um, and he's able to sweet talk everyone. Um, and this is why I say, like, if you start to read this book with the understanding that he's the devil, you'll start seeing all the clues way earlier. When it talks about how he really likes to fiddle and he likes to dance and the way he talks, like, you'll pick up on it early if you understand that going in. Now, the difference between this group of scalp hunters and the previous troop that the kid was with is plain immediately. Uh, though the scalpers are the kind of this motley crew of irregulars, they, uh, they are absolutely prepared and they know exactly what they're doing in a way that, uh, white's paramilitary group didn't. Uh, one of the first nights that they camp, the kid watches one of the Delaware Indians who are the guides for the scalping troop, uh, the Delaware Indian reaches directly into the fire calmly and removes a burning ember and he lights his pipe with it. And this is the first hint that there's some sort of, of subtle mystical aspect to the scalpers, especially the Delaware Indians, as if they aren't wholly human. Because I don't care how tough you are, you can't just reach into a fire and grab a hot coal without reacting to it. And this is, once again, it's the first hint that something's off here. So the focus of the novel, as the group travels, is partly on the group and partly on the landscape. Like many McCarthy novels, he spends a lot of time poetically describing the landscape that the characters travel through, And the landscapes are always beautiful and vivid and amazing. After traveling for a while, the kid has an exchange with a character named Tobin. And Tobin is an ex-priest. And he tells the kid about the judge. 
and he explains a whole bunch of things about the judge that the kid does not yet know. He tells the kid that the judge is a hand at everything he does. He tells him that he can speak several languages. He can speak Dutch. He's ambidextrous. He can shoot, ride, track better than anyone else. He tells him that the judge has been all over the world. Uh, Tobin tells the kids all these things. And while he's talking to the kid about the judge, he also talks about God. And another very important line to the story comes up. Because Tobin tells the kid, No man is given leave of God's voice. And this is a very important line. Because the kid tells Tobin that he hasn't heard no voice. He says, I haven't heard no voice. Meaning, like, I haven't heard the voice of God. And Tobin replies, and this is a a very sad reply once you understand what Tobin's saying. He says, when it stops, you'll know that you've heard it all your life. And you have Tobin, this ex-priest, that seems to be speaking from experience. As if he, at one point, had heard the voice of God, and now, for him, it stopped, and he no longer hears it. And this is because Tobin has, like the rest of the men in the company, besides the kid, he's given himself up to something other than God. And this something, presumably, is the judge, based upon the story that Tobin tells the kid next. When the kid explains to Tobin that he had seen the judge before, Tobin smiles knowingly, and he explains that every man in the company claims to have met, he calls him that sooty-souled rascal, in some other place. And then he explains to the kid that the judge saved them all. Sometime earlier, before the kid had joined up with the outfit, the company was out of gunpire, out of gunpowder and being chased by the Apache. And in the middle of the desert, they encountered the judge, sitting alone on a rock like he was waiting for them. Tobin says there were only 14 of them left out of 38, and most of their horses were dead. And they all knew by this point they were going to die. And at this point in the story, Tobin scoffs and he says, The judge, give the devil his due. They find the judge alone on this rock, smiling at them, and Tobin harps on the fact that none of them could figure out how he had gotten there or where he'd come from. And the judge had no horse. He just has his rifle and a pair of pistols. Tobin says he didn't even have a canteen. Now, in this... uh, It's like this mystic and subtle, but an obvious allusion to the idea that the judge is not a normal human man. The judge tells Tobin, or told Tobin, because this is a past tense story in the novel. The judge told them that he'd been with a wagon train and went off alone, but this is this thinly veiled lie, and everybody in the the troop already kind of knows that that's a lie. Uh, Tobin explained that Glanton just kind of studied the judge for a long time. He tells the kid that Glanton and the judge have some sort of terrible secret covenant. And he stresses that if the kid pays attention, he will see that. So Glanton, Glanton gave the judge a horse, 
and the judge joined the company at that time. And the company rode on, Tobin said. Even though their fate is like still, you know, they they know that they're going to die. And the judge is aware of the situation too. But as they ride on, the judge is just smiling as if everything, and all these are quotes from the novel, as if everything turned out just as he'd planned and the day couldn't have been finer. The judge leads them to a range of mountains and nobody questions him. At this point in the story, Tobin stops to rekindle his pipe. And just like the Delawares, he reaches into the fire and he grabs a raw coal to do it. Even though this is a very small thing in the novel, it shows that it isn't something that just the savage Delawares do, and again shows that there's something odd going on with these men who apparently are not bothered by the heat of the coals. It's almost like... I don't know. I don't want to compare it to that uh, to the movie Pirates of the Caribbean, but everybody's seen that movie, and you know the cursed pirates where like they don't feel pain and they can't be killed. These guys can be killed, but it's kind of like that where they don't seem to feel any pain. Um, the judge is still worried about, or the judge isn't worried about the hundreds of Apaches that are following the group, and they ride around this mountain. And the mountains of volcano. Well, not yet. We're not to the volcano. They ride around this mountain, and the the judge is watching the bats fly in and out of the mountain. And after he watches them, he finds this cave, and he tells the rest of the troop to ride around the mountain and meet them back at this place the following day, or two days from then. And they all leave the judge and one of the Delawares there, and they go to circle the mountain to kind of lead the Apaches off their trail and kind of, you know, make them run in circles for a couple days. Uh, during this two days, the du- the judge goes into the cave. He takes the bat guano from the cave, and he burns wood ash. And when the two days is passed, Glanton and the other men show up, and the judge has eight pounds of saltpeter, and three pounds of charcoal. And if you're paying close attention at home and you know a little something about a little something, these are two of the main ingredients in gunpowder, which is what the troop is out of. The troop has no gunpowder. So after they get the saltpeter and the charcoal, the judge takes them on and they keep running from the Apaches and they come to a volcano. And when they get to kind of the the base of this volcano, the judge delivers this sort of sermon to the men. And the sermon is about how the earth holds all these good things within it. And uh, Tobin explains that the men don't understand the sermon, the sermon, but they follow the judge nonetheless. And he says they follow the judge like disciples of a new faith. And he leads them over the lava rocks and the black glass, and the flint. And uh, Tobin says this is a place where the earth has been stove open and the fires within the earth have burst out. And he talks about finding cloven hoof prints embedded in the lava flows. And he reasons that maybe the fires coughed up the most evil and notorious sinners 
and that uh, devils had to come and walk the earth to reclaim them. So the judge leads them to the top of the volcano to the rim, and the Apaches are behind them, they can see them, and they're approaching. By the time they reach the top, Tobin says that the men are all played out and they're convinced of their impending death. They're defeated. But the judge starts to chip away at the rim of the volcano to get sulfur. And the men help him, and they chip a few pounds of sulfur. They pound the sulfur into dust. And then, at the judge's direction, they pour the saltpeter, the charcoal, and the sulfur together into a big bowl of rock. And Tobin likens this to some sort of ritual, and he jokes that he thought they may they might have to bleed into it. And instead, the judge pisses into this mixture, and he calls for all the men to do the same. And all the men piss into this mixture, and the judge mixes it up. And the judge tells them at this point, he says, piss, piss for your very souls, don't you see the redskins yonder? And the judge is laughing the whole time, maniacally, and he mixes this stuff up until it's this kind of a black batter. Um, and then Tobin calls it a devil's batter by the stench of it. Once again, like once you understand who the judge is, the novel just makes way more sense. So they spread this stuff out, it dries. And by the time the Apaches get to the top, they have gunpowder. And the judge and Glanton and Tobin and the rest are able to massacre all of the Apaches. And Tobin explains that this is, this is the point where all of the group, prior to the kids' arrival, kind of became disciples of the judge. And then after he finishes his story, the kid kind of tries to ask him a question, and he asks him what the judge is a judge of, and Tobin just kind of tells him to be quiet because the judge is listening. Now, the kid, and perhaps the reader at this point in the novel, unless you're reading it after you listen to this, you're not really buying into the, the mystic, supernatural, supernatural nature of the judge at that point. And McCarthy is notoriously ambiguous about it, as many authors are. Um, and he's... Again, McCarthy doesn't talk a lot about his writing, so it's hard for me to tell you everything about what he's trying to tell you. All I can tell you is how I've read it, and this is me reading it eight or nine times and taking the obvious biblical symbolism and passing it on to you, because McCarthy doesn't talk about it. Um, what few interviews he's done, I, I talked about that Oprah Winfrey interview at the beginning. They're relatively boring, and they're wasted on people like Oprah Winfrey. And uh, a lot of his books have been turned into movies. Um, no Country for Old Men is a Cormac McCarthy movie. All the Pretty Horses is a Cormac McCarthy movie. And it's said that, like, uh, for example, on All the Pretty Horses, on the set of it, he wouldn't really put in any input to the director at all. 
and he spent most of his time supposedly with the prop guy discussing guns because he's interested in old guns. So, but one constant in all of one constant in all of his books is this biblical and philosophical theme, the nature of God and humanity, the nature of things like sin, death, and the devil, and characters that represent these things. So as the plot moves forward from the story, from here, the creation of gunpowder by the judge, the deliverance of the company, uh, the violence escalates from here. The men go from killing and scalping Apaches to killing and scalping peaceful Indians, They return to Chihuahua as heroes initially, and the people celebrate because they're riding in with all these scalps of Apaches, but after a couple nights of constant drinking and fighting and general awfulness, they fall out of favor with the people in Chihuahua, and eventually they run out of town by the same people, and the mood of of the troop becomes more sour And this trend continues as the company further devolves into just mindless violence. They start losing men. One of the Delawares is carried off by a grizzly bear. Several men die when the people in a town run the company off after a whole bunch of drinking and they travel deeper and deeper into the wilderness. A couple guys defect, a couple guys disappear and this kind of marks a a difference and an unraveling of the company because the last man to defect was the veteran. And Glanton had sent two of the Delawares off to hunt him down and kill him as a message to the rest of the company. And uh, that's kind of how things are going by that point in the novel. But the company travels to Sonora, and they get another contract for Apache scalps. But that agreement doesn't last very long. Before long, the Mexican army is after them. And they're being chased by not only the Mexican army, but also by the Apache. And they have to draw lots to decide who has to stay behind to kill the wounded of the company to put them out of their misery. And the kid is one of the one who draws the short stick and has to stay behind while the rest of the crew runs on ahead. Now this is where you see that the kid still has like a, a sliver of something that the rest of the crew doesn't have. Because they leave three guys behind to to dispatch the three wounded men. First off, one of them is a Delaware. And another Delaware is the one that stays behind, and he he has no problem with it. He walks up and he smashes the guy in the head. The second guy uh, doesn't want to do it, but not out of pity. He just kind of doesn't want to, and he leaves. Um, And last, you have the kid, and the kid, the guy that the kid has stayed behind to put out of his misery is the only one that's still conscious he shot through the hip and he tries to kind of goad the kid into killing him he cusses him he tells him you know calls him a coward tells him to do it and the kid doesn't really want to um and he he sits by this guy for a while and kind of like uh waits with him 
Um, and, uh, it's, it's a hint that the kid's not lost like the rest of everyone else. And there's this tiny sliver of goodness somewhere deep, deep, deep down in him. It's not anywhere near the surface, but there's this little bit of goodness still in the kid. Um, finally, the guy, uh, the guy doesn't want to be killed and the kid leaves him behind and he follows and, uh, the kid ends up by himself again and he ends up by himself on foot again and he walks alone in the desert. There's a blizzard that comes in, um, that makes things difficult. And then just like two days later, there's this giant thunderstorm and, a lightning and everything, which doesn't really make a lot of sense unless you are from the Southwest region and you understand that that's totally possible. Uh, so the kid wanders in the desert for a while. And, uh, at one point, again, biblical imagery, he stands in front of this burning tree in the middle of the desert, uh, and, uh, doesn't hear the voice of God, but it is symbolic. Finally, he makes it back to the crew, and they they ride on, and they keep going, and uh, everything is bad. The company is worse than they've worse than they've been the entire time. There's nowhere to sell their scalps. They got rid of all their scalps and burned them in in the desert. And finally, one night, the judge chooses this horse out of what's left from the Ramuda. And he calls somebody to help him. And the kid stands up and the ex-priest warns him not to go. Warns him not to answer the judge. But the kid wants to prove that he's not afraid of the judge. And the kid and the judge lead the animal off a ways. And the judge kills the horse by smashing its skull with a rock. It's this sacrifice that the judge has made. And then they ride on. Um, they encounter some uh, severed heads of men that had like left a few days before. And it's like eight heads in this circle. They find burned out wagons and naked bodies of the dead. Um, again, they're following the trail of the Apache raiding party. And they finally make this small town. Um, and the... The population of the town is not happy to see them because they look somehow even more feral than they have the entire time. Uh, that doesn't last long. They move on. The Later on, they find some more of their troop that are scouts that they sent out, and these scouts are hung upside down in a tree. Their guts have been cut out, and they've been burned. Um, they see buzzards. It's, it's clear that whatever seemed to be making the group impervious early in the novel is not really there anymore. Uh, a lot of the main members of the company are dying off. All the Delaware Indians are dead. Uh, the man named Bathcat, who is one of the main characters alongside, uh, the kid, Toadvine, Tobin, uh, and a couple others, he's dead. Um, they go on and on and on. Now, eventually, they run into some soldiers. 
And they go into this town, and this is uh, not towards the end of the novel, but we're we're about in the middle. And they uh, they make it to this town, and they they run into some soldiers, and there's this killing that goes on. They kill the bartender, basically. And then the soldiers sl- show up to kind of keep the peace, and Glanton denies the killing, even though everybody knows they did it. And the judge kind of speaks like an attorney at this point, kind of denying uh, this. And um, at this point in the novel, and this isn't the first time this has happened, I just kind of glossed over it before, but one of the children in the town disappears. And uh, this has happened several times while the company is anywhere near children. One of the children will disappear. And it's hinted at that the judge is responsible for these disappearances. Uh, Because there's one point earlier in the novel where they find an Indian child. And uh, Toadvine is walking by the judge and the judge is bouncing the baby. It's like a toddler on his knee kind of playing with it. And Toadvine's going to get his horse. And on the way back, Toadvine's leading his horse, and the judge is still sitting there, but the child is dead. The judge has killed it and scalped it. And the, the hint is that the judge is the one that's, that's responsible for these disappearances of the children. Around uh, about this point in the novel, the judge gives one of his famous sermons, And in this uh, sermon, the topic is war. And this is one of the most famous kind of speeches by the judge in the novel. And the judge explains that men are born for games, and that every child inherently understands that games are nobler than work, and that war is the ultimate game because of what is at hazard, what's been put up, and that's your life. And nearly everything he says in explanation of all this is in direct and absolute conflict with all the basis of Judeo-Christian philosophy. And at the end of his little speech, the judge claims that war is God. One man disagrees, and he says that uh, might does not make, make right. He says that winning a fight does not morally vindicate you. And the judge argues that moral law is a human invention and that nature's law subverts it at every turn. And this displays a very simple and very important truth that humanity continues to miss generation after generation, separating morality from God and making it a human invention renders it subjective and malleable. This this always results in the subversion or the perversion of morality. And this is exactly what the judge is doing. And he's doing it on purpose. The judge lifts war to the level of God as the ultimate judge of human conflict and moral question. After this, he waits on someone to argue with him, but nobody speaks. And then he singles out the ex-priest Tobin, and he asks him what he thinks. And Tobin replies that he's not going to say. 
He won't, he won't, uh, he says, I'm not going to second say your notions. And then the judge points out that the ex-priest has already said, because the priest has put away his priesthood and has chosen to become a warrior instead. Thus, war is a higher calling than the priesthood. And the judge claims that the priest would be no God's server, but a God himself. If there was any more proof needed that the judge is Satan himself, this is it. And this is the the temptation of Adam and Eve exactly. Why serve God when you could be like God? That's the lie that Satan used to get Adam and Eve to fall away. Tobin says that the judge is blasphemous and that he never was a priest anyway. He said he won't second say him. And the judge asked him, What can I ask of you that you've not already given? And this is because Tobin, as well as all the men of the company, have already made this Faustian bargain with the judge. They've sold their souls to him, and they all know it. And only the kid has not yet completed this pact with him. Um, the remainder of the novel is the further unraveling of the company. They finally get to kind of a stationary place. They they take over a ferry at a river, and they just start robbing people uh, as they get to the ferry. At first, they just take over the ferry and start to, you know, take the take the charges for themselves. And then, in very short order, they are taking everything from the people. They are they're just drinking all day. They're reveling. They are taking slaves. They're taking women as sexual slaves. Uh, they're, they're, they barely bother to dress themselves. They're walking around in towels and cloth like a toga, like Romans. And this goes on for a while. And finally, they're ambushed by a, by a large party of Yuma Indians. And almost all of the scalp hunters are killed. The first one is Black Jackson. Black Jackson is shot through with arrows while he's peeing in the river. And then what follows is this realization of a prophecy that's given by a gypsy woman at the beginning of the novel that Black Jackson's death marks the death of the company. And the Yumas move through the camp and they slay everyone, or almost everyone. Uh, Glanton dies in his bed. They hack him to pieces. Um, several other people are killed. Um, the people who escape. Toad Vine escapes by himself. David Brown was not present when it happened. The kid and Tobin escape. And the judge escapes with this mentally handicapped person that they call the idiot, who's basically a circus show a sideshow that they that they kind of picked up along the way um and the company after this is completely dissolved and the few survivors scatter into the desert and once they scatter into the desert the the pact between the company is kind of done um and it's it's almost it's not every man for himself, but it's every kind of group for himself. Like Tobin and the kid are together, and they see the judge, but 
almost immediately they see the judge as an enemy now, not as somebody who is their friend. And they they pass through this place that's covered in bones in the desert. Again, very biblical imagery, the Valley of the Dry Bones. Um, The judge tries to act like they're still companions, but everyone realizes that something has now changed. And the judge is now this direct antagonist to the kid and to Tobin, um, and the judge begins to chase them. Uh, So they run through the desert. The kid... Tobin tries to get the kid to shoot the judge. And the kid has this chance at one point, and either he doesn't take it or he can't take it for some reason. And the kid passes up this opportunity to shoot the judge, and he'll never get another. Um, eventually, Tobin and the kid make it out of the desert, and they make it to town, uh, to San Diego, and they separate. Tobin goes to find medical attention, and the kid just stumbles in the saloon to drink, even though the kid probably needs medical attention too. Um, the kid's arrested, and he's found to be a member of Glanton's gang, so this obviously means he's going to be arrested. And uh, as he sits in prison, he's visited by the judge. And the last time he saw the judge in the desert, the judge was basically naked and was just wearing like a hat and was carrying a whole bunch of like uh, dried meat that he was just carrying on his body to make it through the desert. And now suddenly the judge is dressed in very expensive clothes. He's wearing a suit. He's carrying like a, he's not carrying his big revolver anymore. He just has like this tiny derringer on his belt. And he tells the kid that uh, everyone has been asking if he, the kid, had always been insane. Because all the members of Glanton's gang that have been found and captured have been found to be insane, to be crazy. And the judge jokes with the kid that he told them that it was the country that made them all crazy. He even told the authorities that the idiot, the retarded man that he'd been dragging along behind him, he said that he'd once been a respected professor of divinity. Um, The judge accuses the kid of abandoning all of his company, and he, he said that he told the authorities the truth, and this truth that he told them was that the kid was the person responsible for all the events that led to the massacre at the river. He tells the kid that everyone believes that he conspired with the Yuma Indians to murder Glanton's gang. Finally, the judge tells the kid that the authorities plan to hang him. And the kid argues with the judge that it was him. It was the judge that was to blame for everything. And the judge says that it was never me. And he insists that the kid was the only one of the company who had not bled into the common blood as the rest of them. And this is what the judge said makes the kid a traitor to the company. And that's about the end of the scene. And the kid is not actually hung. Um, It's possibly because the kid is only 16 years old. We finally learn that there's only been two years that have passed 
since the kid ran away from home to now. And because he's only 16, somehow he's released. He doesn't get hung. He goes to a doctor to remove the arrow shaft from his leg. Um, As he's under the influence of whatever the doctor gives him, he has super vivid and hallucinogenic dreams. And the judge is in all of his dreams. And in his dreams, the kid sees his name written in the judge's ledger book. Goodness, what symbolism. Uh, Once he recovers from this, um, he just exists after that as kind of a homeless vagrant. He wanders through the streets. He sees Toadvine and Brown hung in public in Los Angeles. He never again sees Tobin, the ex-priest. He runs completely out of money, and with his last $2, he buys the necklace of human ears that Brown was wearing when he was hung. And it doesn't really explain why he buys it, other than this is the last thing he has to, you know, the last thing, memory from the company. And he continues to walk around the West. He drifts around. He finds work wherever he can. Uh, He finds a discarded Bible, but he can't read it. He sees the, the wildness and the violence of the West as he travels, and it's all starting to kind of like, uh, I don't know. Every, it, the West is still very violent at this point, but it's getting less so. And he grows up all over the Western frontier, witnessing the development of settlement in the American West, and from the age of 16 to the age of 28, he just kind of drifts around. At 28, he goes eastward into the mountains. He, he, uh, it's been several years, and he's now traveling. Instead of traveling west, now he's traveling east. And he meets this old woman in the desert, and she's kneeling. Kind of, There's this long trail, and he finds her beside the trail, and she is kind of just in the desert kneeling. And he goes up to her, and he speaks to her very kindly. And this is about the only time in which we see the kid as a truly redeemable character. And I think that's the point. Um, He's worried about this old woman. And he says that he'll take her out of this place and he'll keep her safe. And he talks to her for a while and she won't respond and she won't move. And finally he realizes when he goes to touch her, he, re- he realizes that she is dead. And not only is she dead, she's been dead for years and years. This is a, a, he talks to this mummified corpse, not understanding that she's not alive. And it's, it's very symbolic in that like, uh, it's, a, it's a symbol for that there's no redemptive act for the kid to perform. Because this was the moment for the kid to be redeemed to do his good deed, to save this old woman from certain death. And when he goes to touch her, she's been dead for a hundred years. And it's a message of there, there will be no redemption for the kid. And we finally get to the last chapter. And the last chapter starts with the kid being the man. Um, it's years later again. And the man is now grown up into, well, a man. 
He's on the plains of North Texas, in the Panhandle, as the chapter opens up, and the year is seventeen or 1878. And the date is important because in this area of the country, in the Panhandle of Texas, the Panhandle of Oklahoma, where the kid finds himself, this date marks only a couple years after the last of the Comanche have been defeated and run out of the area. Arguably, this area is the least civilized place in the continental United States at the time, in 1878. So it would make sense that the man who's lived his entire life in the most uncivilized portions of the West finds himself here at the end of the novel. He speaks to an old buffalo hunter who tells him about killing millions of buffalo and what it was like. He explains that now there are no buffalo to be found where years before there had been 8 million killed. Uh, Next, the man comes along bone pickers who are gathering bones to use for fertilizer. They're ragged and filthy, and he doesn't talk to them. He comes close to one wagon, and it's driven by these two young boys. And uh, he sees them, but again, he doesn't talk to them. And he goes and he camps. And in the night, he hears the yapping of starving wolves. About midnight, a few wretched children dressed in like old skins join him at his fire. And there are no adults, just these five children. And the oldest one asks him questions. They ask him if he has any tobacco, any whiskey. And they ask if he's headed to Griffin. Apparently, Griffin is this infamous frontier town full of whores and whiskey. And the kids explain that it's set up to be, they call it the biggest town for sin in Texas. And the man, the man says that that's where he's headed. One of the boys asks the man about his necklace of ears. And the man tells him that they're Apache ears. One of the boys says he doesn't believe him. And the man doesn't care. Uh, but he explains a little bit of his history. And the kid that he's talking to doesn't believe him. He calls him a liar, basically. And uh, that's when the man's had enough, and he he sends the kid off, and he he tells him... uh, He tries to send the kid off, and he asks how old the kid is. One of the other kids tells him he's 15. The man replies that he's like... uh, He says, when I was 15, that's the first time I was shot. Um... And the boy will not leave and continues to mess with the man. And then finally he says he warns them to take him away or he'll kill him. And after they leave, the man makes up his bed as if he's sleeping in it and he waits in the dark. And sure enough, the mouthy boy comes back with a gun uh, later with obvious intent. And the man shoots him. And he says, you wouldn't have lived anyway as the boy dies. And uh, that's kind of the end of that scene. Then the man arrives in Griffin, and he finds it exactly as it had been described. There's saloons and there's whores everywhere. There's fiddle music that's playing on the street. The man ties up his horse. He enters a saloon, and uh, 
he takes this last look at the planes and the sunset, and then he walks into the saloon. And there's this show going on inside the saloon. There's there's this uh, inside the saloon. There's this show. It's a dancing circus bear that's on stage. And there's this young girl that grinds an organ. And the man orders whiskey, and he drinks it. And from across the room, the judge is watching him. And the judge, this is kind of, I don't know, almost word for word what it says in this final chapter. It says, The judge sits among every kind of man, a herder, a bullwhacker, a drover, a freighter, a miner, a hunter, a soldier, a gambler, a drifter, a drunkard, and a thief. The author, McCarthy, is very deliberate here in the last pages of the book to show you that the judge is surrounded by every man, as if the judge has a sway over their hearts. He sits with them, but he's apart from them. He's some other kind. And after a while, the kid notices that he is there. The kid notices the judge. And the first thing he notices is that the judge hasn't changed at all in all the years since last he's seen him, which logically, if the kid went from being 16 to we don't know how old, but older than 28, then, well, I guess we do know how old, if you do the math, between 14 years old when he ran away, and now it's 1878, the boy is a man. The judge has not changed at all. The judge has not aged. And the man sits there, he watches the bear dance on the stage, he watches the whores, and then he looks back to where the judge was sitting, and the judge isn't there. Um, suddenly, out in the crowd, a drunk guy draws his revolver and shoots the bear, and the bear begins dancing faster and faster, the music stops, the man shoots again, the bear totters and cries and falls over, and the little girl kneels down by the bear and begins to sob and cry. And uh, one of the whores steps forward and tries to calm the crowd down and says, it's all over. And as soon as she says that, in the, in the man's ear, the judge is there. And the judge asks him, do you think it's all over? He's sitting right beside him. And he calls him, he says, you're the last of the true. And he explains that all of the company is dead, except for the man and himself, the judge. And as he talks, the little girl is still sobbing beside the bear. Men are preparing to remove the bear from the saloon. And they, they say they're, they're getting ready for the dance. The man tells the judge he needs to leave. And he doesn't have time to dance. He's not going to join in the dance. And the judge encourages the man to have a drink because he says, and this is important, he says, this night thy soul may be required of thee. It seems almost like a threat, but the man doesn't catch on. And the man drinks. And the judge asks the man if he always thought if he didn't speak, he wouldn't be recognized. He tells the man that he's been a disappointment to him. The judge acts as if the man has come here searching for him. 
the judge asks if the man if the men are here are not here for a reason. The man says he doesn't need one. The judge replies that if they're here with no reason of their own, they are here by the reason of some other. All of what the judge is saying goes over the man's head, it seems like. He, te- he keeps talking about the dance and the dancers. He explained that this is a ritual, and a ritual requires a blood sacrifice. He says that blood is the agent that bonds men together. He insists that this is not a mis- not mysterious or riddle. The man replies he doesn't like craziness. He doesn't like the judge. He, he doesn't have time for the judge's, you know, blabberings. The judge tells the man to observe the other men around him. He says, pick any of them. He points one out, and he tells the man that you know his opinion of the world. You can read it in his face. He says, he says the man's life is difficult, and he hasn't turned out the way he wanted it to. He asks if the man can honestly say there isn't some evil thing set against him, that there are no liens or creditors on his soul. He asks if all the gods are sleeping or dead. He explains that the man cannot change his fate no matter what. He points out that the man is muttering to himself. Who is he talking to? He asks. Finally, the judge encourages the man to drink again, and he does. The man still kind of passively argues with the judge about the nature of his pronouncements, but uh, the judge is now questioning time and reality itself, and the man brushes it off by saying that he's been everywhere and this is just another place. He's adamant that there's nothing mystic, nothing unnatural going on. He says that the judge is crazy. Now, even though the man is saying there's nothing mystic, nothing unnatural going on, this seems just like denial at this point, because it's obvious that the judge is there. It's obvious that the judge hasn't aged. It's obvious that there's something mystic and unnatural going on. Next, the judge asks the man how he knows the past is real or how he knows the places he's been still exist. He asks him where Shelby is, who the man abandoned to the Mexican soldiers. Where is Tate, who the man abandoned after the Comanche attack at the beginning of the book? This is important because these two men, the judge would not know about unless he had some sort of mystic, unexplainable knowledge of the man's memories and soul, because the man never told anybody about Shelby or Tate. The man leaves the judge, and he tries to get a whore. And the whore he tries to get is a dwarf whore. She picks him out of the crowd, and he goes with her, and he's unable to perform when it's time to perform. And this is why a lot of people that read the book believe that the man, and not the judge, was the one responsible for the disappearances of children during the novel. Uh, It's thought that maybe the man was a pedophile, and he went with the dwarf in an attempt to satiate his lust, but he can't do it. 
The man leaves the saloon to go to the outhouse, and he stumbles to the door. Um, at this point, the little girl that was kind of the companion to the circus bear, she's gone missing, and men are out in the street looking for her. The man stumbles down to the Jake's, the outhouse, and he opens the door and he enters. And inside, he finds the judge, and the judge is naked and seated on the bench. And the judge rises up smiling, and he gathers the man up against his naked body, and he locks the door. And the man's fate is finally realized at the end, the judge finally takes him. Now, later, it says, two men are at the Jake's. One man stands outside, and he's pissing, and they ask him if someone's in there. He replies, I wouldn't go in there if I was you. When they open the door of the Jake's, the reader does not get to see what they find. The man only says, good God almighty. Now, this is interesting in a novel full of the most horrifying and disgusting imagery of arguably any other novel, uh, the reader is deprived of or saved from a description of what is behind the door. There's a lot of speculation on what it is by many people who read the book. The fact that you as the reader don't see it is probably a more horrifying idea than actually knowing because it allows your mind to form kind of its own ideas on what it might be. Maybe it's just the man's dead body. Maybe it is the man and the missing girl both dead. Maybe it's something even worse. Back at the saloon, the judge is dancing and fiddling wildly to a cheering crowd. Um... The tense of the novel changes to present tense at the very end, which is really on purpose, but interesting and odd and and profound. And then the final paragraph of the novel is this. And they are dancing, the board four slamming under the jackboots, and the fiddlers grinning hideously over their canted pieces. Towering over them all is the judge, and he is naked dancing, his small feet lively and quick, and now in double time, and bowing to the ladies, huge and pale and hairless, like an enormous infant. He never sleeps, he says. He says he will never die. He bows to the fiddlers and sashays backwards and throws back his head and laughs deep in his throat, and he is a great favorite, the judge. He wafts his hat, and the lunar dome of his skull passes palely under the lamps, and he swings about and takes possession of one of the fiddles, and he pirouettes and makes a pass, two passes, Dancing and fiddling at once. His feet are light and nimble. He never sleeps. He says that he will never die. He dances in light and shadow, and he is a great favorite. 
He never sleeps, the judge. He is dancing. Dancing. He says that he will never die. For many people, the importance of the ending is overshadowed by the strange abruptness of the man's demise. The man is not killed on screen. But the man is not the singular focus of the ending of the novel. The judge is the focus. The end is, is the horrifying reveal of the truth that you have known the, the entire novel. The judge is the devil, and he has finally won the soul of the man. The man was unable to change his fate. Not because of the judge's reason, though. The judge claims that the fate of the man cannot be changed. This is the cleverest of the judge's lies. The man was never redeemed, even though he held out beyond all the rest of the damned and doomed men of Glanton's gang. He's consumed in the end precisely because... He denies who and what the judge is. Out of some sort of vanity or pride, the man still denies the judge. The preacher in the tent told him who the judge was. Tobin told him who the judge was and warned him about his nature. The man, who always wanted to prove he wasn't scared of the judge, strove to ignore every warning sign he was given the entire novel. He thought he could contend with the judge all by himself. He refused to believe that the judge could or would consume him. And that's the true horror of the story. It's a true tragedy that can teach you an important lesson about the nature of the devil and all his lies. Only in understanding this nature can you avoid the same fate as the man. Only by admitting who you are dealing with when it comes to the devil can mankind best him. Can you best him? God is required for all of this. God is required for morality. He's required for civilized society. God is required for personal redemption and salvation. The man refused to entertain those ideas. The man refused to see the judge for what he was. He dances in light and shadow. And he is a great favorite. He never sleeps, the judge. He says, and he will never die. 